1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. And then to the end of the section, chapter 10, verse 23, we're reading the two brackets of this section in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is said before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would open our hearts to hear your voice as we study your word. And we pray for the fruit that we would grow more like your Son, that we would care more for your glory and the salvation of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here we are. We've come to the final talk in our series in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. And the whole of this series um, has been grappling with the question of how we as Christians engage with the world around us. How free are we to engage with the world around us? And what are we going to use our freedoms for? Are we going to use them for ourselves or for others? Now, I realize if you've just kind of come to visit church this morning, if you're just looking in on the Christian kind of uh, life, it might sound a bit odd, this question. 
Like, why do you need to worry? What's the problem with the world around? But the Bible would say the issue with the world around us is idolatry, that is, worship of other gods, false gods. This letter was originally written to a church in in Corinth, and that society was absolutely chock full of idolatry. Um, It was a kind of melting pot city. There were ports nearby, trading routes going right through. It was full of different cultures, different backgrounds, different religions. A city full of temples, pagan gods, all sorts of cultures. And so these Christians faced the issue, well, how free are we to engage with an idolatrous world around us? Can we eat food sacrificed to these idols? Can we go to the same feasts and ceremonies that our friends and colleagues are going? Can we go to the yoga classes, the Halloween parties, the Christmas events, given the way everyone else is celebrating? And the default answer for the Corinthians was, yeah, (laughs) of course we can. Of course we can. We, we know our Bibles. We know our rights. We're Christians. We're really clear. This is all nonsense. We don't believe in this. There's only one God. So of course we can go along knowing it's nonsense. I mean, it's just chicken they're eating. Not serious at all. But if you were here last week for the first part of chapter 10, you will have seen actually God does take idolatry really seriously. Not the chicken. He did make that. Not the idol, that's false, but the worship, the idolatry, the giving of glory to something other than the creator God, the God of the Bible. That, in fact, is really serious. In fact, last week we were told that there are demonic spiritual powers, invisible forces in this world, diverting worship from God to these other things. Idolatry is a kind of glory robbing, a theft of the worship due to the one true creator onto things within his creation. And last week we were told to run a mile from participating in that. And we need to realize that while it might not be as obvious in Morningside as it was in Corinth, We need to realize that Edinburgh is a city full of different idols. Colossians 3 says greed is idolatry. I wonder if there's any greed in this city. There are are still obvious ones today, aren't there? I mean, there are plenty of religions around us in this international city. There are monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam. There are Eastern religions, Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, Confucianism. There are New Age religions, a kind of pick-and-mix paganism or a pick-your-own-spiritualism. They're all represented. We may not have friends in every category, but they're all in the city. And actually, it's not just those explicitly religious forms of worship. More subtly, in this city, as in every city on the planet, there's the idolatry of taking something good that God has made and making it the ultimate thing, a God-substitute. So there's the worship of a sports team. There's worship of a music group, a shopping experience, a celebrity, an ideal of how you look physically or fashion-wise, a career or business reputation, a dream relationship, an enviable social media profile, a successful family, a beautiful home. There's taking of good gifts of God and, and misusing them, abusing them, allowing yourself to be dominated by them, gifts of sex, drugs, alcohol, wealth. 
God substitutes idolatry. It's all over Edinburgh. And perhaps most subtly of all, there's idolatry in, in, in false views of God that enable lots of the kind of secular relativism of Scottish culture at the moment in Edinburgh. A kind of convenient, custom-made view of God that will just let us do whatever we want in our cultural moment, a God that's fit for the 21st century. It's not a God made of metal. Every bit as much a God handcrafted, though, by human imaginations. And you can pick all sorts of flavors today. Here's a few. A God who doesn't mind how you worship him. All roads lead up the mountain. Or a creator who has no rights to speak about in discussions about the start or the end of life. Or a God who'll keep his nose out of public affairs, a God who's kind of happy to be a hobby on the weekends. Or conversely, the opposite, a God you can speak about in public but has no rights over my private life, a God who can't tell me what I do with my body, a God who just never disagrees with us, a God who can be safely refashioned when required. See, there are lots of idols in our culture, both overtly religious and supposedly not. Idols are everywhere. Wherever you find human beings, you find human-crafted gods. Again, if you're looking in on Christianity today, I realize that might, that might sound quite stark. If you're not a religious person, you might think, well, I'm not a worshiper. But the Bible says all human beings are made to live for something, to love something bigger than themselves. And so wherever you find human beings, even if they're not worshipping the God of the Bible, they are worshipping. Just have a look back at chapter 8, verse 6, from our first, 5 and 6 from our first reading. Chapter 8, verse 5 on page 956. This is the great theological truth our series started with. Verse 5 of chapter 8. Although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father, now listen to this, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We're made by God for God. It's in our DNA. Everyone lives for something. Everyone has a bottom line of what they trust in or fear or live for. And here's the thing. If idolatry is that pervasive, if it's all over the place when you go through the doors out there, and as we saw last week, if God is indignantly opposed to it, well, perhaps it's safer not to have any contact with the world at all. If God provokes, sorry, if idolatry provokes God so much that it put Israel in danger and this Corinthian church in danger, perhaps we should just retreat. I mean, there are so many tricky questions, aren't there, if you do think about getting involved. Some of them will come up on the screen. We've already got up there the ones that the Corinthians grapple with, but there are loads more, loads and loads and loads and loads more. The screen will fill up, but actually that's only a tiny proportion of the questions we could ask. It's an absolute minefield about what we could or couldn't get involved in. So maybe we should maintain our purity and our holiness uh, by just withdrawing into a Christian ghetto, you know, only hang around with Christians, and develop our own Christianized subculture, Christian schools, 
Christian films, Christian music, Christian sports clubs, Christian housing, Christian dinner parties. Only meeting people who will spur me on to worship Christ. And certainly throughout church history, many church movements have done that. Sometimes accidentally, by just never getting to know anyone who wasn't a Christian. Sometimes deliberately, putting up the monastery walls or pulling down the cultural shutters. And to be honest, if 1 Corinthians 10 had ended at verse 22, I think that might have been understandable. We don't want to provoke the Lord to jealousy. Surely it's safer just to pull out, just withdraw, just live in a safe, happy Christian culture, subculture. But what's striking is this passage we've got this morning carries on. And just look at where the focus turns to in verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. It's a passage that returns to the idea of engaging with the world around us. Hard to seek the good of your neighbor if you never talk to them. Or verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat. Go, eat, whatever's set before you. Or verse 33, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. This whole section ends not on the note of warning, run away, but instead steps back to a summary that puts all of the jigsaw pieces together. The chapter 8 jigsaw piece, think about your weaker brother. The chapter 9 jigsaw piece, reach out to those who don't know Jesus, as well as the chapter 10 jigsaw piece. It's drawing the threads together. And it's going to give us some worked examples. What does it actually look like to go through this process on the ground? So that's what we're going to do. You'll see on the back of the handout, um, uh, the white piece of paper, uh, there's an outline of where we're going. We're going to start um, spending some time on the big principles from the, from the top and tail of the passage, and then we'll go into some specific case studies. And we'll do the case studies that Paul gives in, in verses 25 to 30, and then we'll do some real-life ones for us. So if you've ever wondered what Christians should think about halal food, or yoga, or Christmas parties at work, or topically Halloween, uh, we are going to get there. But first off, the big principles. And the overarching one is there in verse 31, isn't it? Verse 31, do all to the glory of God. This is the kind of bottom line for a Christian. It's the direct flow out of what we saw in chapter 8, verse 6. If you know that there's only one God, through whom everything exists, for whom everything exists, well, of course, every day, every minute, every place, we live for that God. All the stuff we do in verse 30 is, is to be taken, done with, in thankfulness to him. And verse 31, in worship of him. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's click the uh, slides on one more and put that up at the top. That's a great theme verse for the Christian life. We're just doing the first half of it at the moment. It's also a great diagnostic question. If you are facing one of these tricky issues, should I get engaged in a particular activity in life? It's worth asking, can I honestly do this to God's glory? 
Of course, that would immediately rule out anything that God speaks against in his words. But I think it's also helpful in the, in the grayer areas where it's hard to draw the line. Can I give him thanks for this activity or am I joining in with the thanks and glory and worship going somewhere else? I was sitting in a small group last week that were discussing that about um, supporting football to God's glory. What would it mean? What songs would you not sing at the stadium? Similarly, a music concert. How can you appreciate an artist's God-given gifts without participating in the celebrity worship that goes on at gigs? Likewise, at work, what's the line between working hard, serving God in the office, versus joining in with the materialism, the careerism that says money makes the world go round? The profit motive is to be pursued at all costs. Those are all questions Christians need to grapple with. And I'm not here to provide the answer, the kind of neat solution to each one. We've got to think with this principle. Can I honestly do this to the glory of God? And again, it's complicated on the grounds. We might find ourselves thinking, wouldn't it be easier just to always say no? But that's where we need the second big principle, prioritizing the eternal good of my neighbor. Just look at this. In verse 22, we just hear this warning about God's jealousy. That's the kind of you must do things to God's glory. And look how immediately it turns to think of other people. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up, starting to think about others. Then verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So striking, isn't it? Straight from undivided devotion to God, don't two-time God, into think about building up your neighbor. And exactly the same in verse 31. Uh, whatever you do, glorify God, verse 31. And then immediately, verse 32, think about different people around you. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just say, um, seek the advantage of others that they may be saved. Do you see the point? Living for the glory of God does not mean retreating from my neighbors around me, but reaching out, seeking their good. I guess we shouldn't be surprised by that. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? What did he say? Well, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And those are not two different commands pulling in different directions. No, the way we glorify and love the creator God is partly in how we love those he's made. A holy life is not a hermit life. And actually, we should, have, we should know that from Jesus' life on earth, shouldn't we? I mean, what was the criticism that Jesus got from the religious people around him? Who are you eating with? Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. How can you be a holy man? if you're eating with them. And Paul says, imitate Jesus just like I do. Live for God's glory, yes, but get alongside people who are worshiping idols. And of course, that's not easy. It's complicated. It's complex, uncomfortable, sometimes confusing. But Jesus and Paul were willing to do the hard thinking. They put their preferences to the back of the queue as they sought their neighbor's good. What is our neighbor's good, verse 24? What actually is that? Well, again, look at, verse 20, uh, look at verse 33. 
Paul is our model, modeling himself on Jesus. Verse 33, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many, and here comes the advantage, the good, that they may be saved. That's the primary good, the eternal good of our neighbor, that they may be saved. Of course, because all humans worship something, and if you're not worshiping the living God, you're on a collision course with reality. And so Paul, in seeking the good of those around him, was always seeking for a chance to speak of Jesus to them. Think back to the stuff we saw at the end of chapter 9, where he says, I'm free of all, but I make myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Or he said, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul went around minimizing cultural offense, going as far as he could culturally to meet people where they were at, all so that he might share the good news of Jesus and offer them salvation. Now, what does this look like on the ground? Um, Sometimes you, you hear Christians say that their kind of big aim in getting to know friends who aren't Christians is so, so that their friends would think Christians aren't that weird. You know, kind of, maybe they'll think we're a bit cooler if I join them at the, at the concert or whatever or watch that TV program with them. Maybe they'll think we're not as strange as the TV suggests we are. Um, and actually, that can be a necessary step. I mean, uh, there are lots of misunderstandings and barriers um, about Christianity. But Paul would never have settled for just that. His aim in life was not to be popular or to to have people think, oh, you guys are all right. He wouldn't have stopped there because his ultimate aim was very clear. He wanted to see people saved. He wanted them and looked for an opportunity to speak about the Lord Jesus. He did that both for their sake and, of course, for God's glory. This is how the two principles fit together. Remember what we said, idolatry is is glory theft. It's diverting worship that's due to God to something else. Every person was made for him and by him. And so for God's glory, Paul would seek to win people to salvation. Likewise, Jesus. Jesus, the only man who ever uh, lived for God's glory every day. The only man who always loved his neighbor as himself. Well, his priorities were very clear. He was compassionate, and not just to heal or to to, to, um, feed or to sort out the messy politics of the day, but to proclaim good news of forgiveness, eternal forgiveness from sin through his death, winning people back to their maker. That's how he sought their good and our good. And praise God for it. That's the priority to imitate. Now, a couple of caveats here, because it is easy to get the wrong end of the stick here. Um, Is this saying that uh, we basically kind of drop a 10-minute gospel bomb on anyone who happens to kind of cross our path? You know, that kind of thing someone expresses even the slightest bit of curiosity that I'm a Christian, and you sit them down and give them a kind of half-hour sermon on the entirety of the gospel. Well, no. Obviously, we respect and love people. We share as much as is appropriate for the time. Even Paul, actually, an itinerant ministry, took time with people, shared his life with people, persuaded and reasoned over time. We've got to recognize we're just links in a chain. But that said, 
We are proactive in maximizing the chances of people hearing the gospel and being saved, just as Paul was and Jesus was, lovingly investing in people, joining people on their cultural terms, going through the pain barrier. I was chatting to someone this week, actually, who um, was speaking to me about his colleagues at work. Uh, He was asking for prayer because he struggles to take opportunities to speak about Jesus when the chance comes up in the office. In fact, he was very honest. He admitted that when he senses a conversation is about to stray onto that kind of territory, he makes a hasty retreat. (laughs) He was saying, actually, the longer you go on in work, the more you've got to lose, the more reputational credit that might go. And so we prayed together for courage and for a really unmissably obvious opportunity to share Jesus. And amazingly, the very next evening, a late-night text came through, and it said he bumped into an atheist colleague of his at a Christian talk. He'd gone to a lecture run by a Christian group, and to both of their surprise, uh, it was someone actually he had, he, he, he'd deliberately not ever got onto Christian conversation with, because he thought the guy wouldn't be at all interested but now they're engaged in talking things through. I mean, that's if you, if you want a motivation to come to the, the prayer focus evening in those four central training nights, um, there's, a, there's an encouragement. It actually works. Extraordinary. And it was a reminder to me that who is our neighbor in verse 30, it, 24, who's our neighbor? Well, verse 20, 32, all sorts of people. Again, let's not pre-select only people like ourselves, only the very next door uh, neighbor. Paul gave no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That's probably the weaker brothers in chapter 8. Um, I try to please everyone in everything I do, seeking the advantage of many that they may be saved. So there are our big two principles. Um, I hope by now they make sense. We've, we've kind of mentioned lots of these as we've gone through. Like Paul and Jesus, we're to live for the glory of God which will involve prioritizing the eternal good of our neighbors, which is their salvation. To put it in a nutshell, uh, as we said at the start, is my Christianity me-shaped, like Corinth, or cross-shaped, like Christ? Now, in a moment, we'll get to the nitty-gritty scenarios. Just uh, to add my commendation for those... um, the central training things as all our small groups gather together. Um, they really are. I know, I know sometimes we can feel like any mention of evangelism feels like a beat-up, but they're really not going to be a beat-up. Um, the idea is a kind of G-up or a leg-up. They might not be the right phrases, but G-up as in we'll share some of the encouragements of what's already happening and some imaginative ideas about how do we engage with the world around us. Um, and we'll share some practical help and, and kind of support in our groups um, uh, as we try and take one step forward. And where for some of us, this will be stuff we've been consciously trying to do for years or for months. Others of us, we we still haven't taken the plunge um, to pray for something or try something. Um, But all of us can take one step. And we'll try and be supporting one another in that. Um, But actually, the first bit of practical support doesn't come in the central trainings. It comes in verses 25 to 30 of this passage. Because Paul doesn't want the big principles just to kind of float in the air. He wants to give us some specific case studies so that we know what this looks like, how you apply this on the ground. And I think this is really helpful because as we've seen throughout the series, the answer to to whether Christians engage in particular activities 
in an idolatrous world is not always no or always yes. And we'll see a mixture of no's and yeses now. It's not always kind of holy huddle church, the kind of retreat, retreat, retreat. Um, but nor is it the kind of just always dive in, blend in, say yes, don't offend everyone by, by never saying no to anything. Um, actually, both those kind of churches are invisible. One um, from being so isolated, one from a total lack of distinctiveness. Now, glorifying God means not participating in idol worship, but genuinely engaging with idol worshippers. And to help illustrate that, verses 25 onwards gives us some quick-fire scenarios. Um, Now, I realize at points, food offered to idols may have seemed like an issue miles away from our world. I don't think it is as far away as we think. Um, Just think, for example, about halal food for a moment, halal meat. It's not actually exactly the same as this um, halal food. There is a prayer said to Allah as the animal is slaughtered, um, but it's not quite the same as it being involved in a full-blown temple worship ceremony. But just like with halal, the sim- similarities, you can encounter it in lots of different contexts. So verse 25, what about if you're in the supermarkets? Well, verse 25, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, in this culture, most of the meat will have been through the temple system. But a Christian is actually free to buy and eat it at home. Striking, isn't it? How can that be? Isn't it tainted? Isn't it kind of, uh, kind of um, tainted by worship of a false god, by idolatry? Well, no, because originally it was God's chicken. He's the one who made it. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Actually, God owns all the food in the planet. Of course we can eat to his glory with thankfulness to him. Then why is it okay here when it was so wrong in verse 21 to eat? Well, the problem was not the food. The problem was the worship in verses 18 to 22. The act of worship that the eating in the temple in a temple ceremony was part of. By the time it's packaged up in Tesco's, there's plenty of distance from that. That's the same answer, by the way. Some of the small groups were grappling with, how is it okay to eat in chapter 8, but not okay to eat in chapter 10? It's the same answer. Um, It's okay to eat kind of in in the courtyards where there are uh, private dining rooms and kind of restaurants effectively in the temple complex. It's not okay to be in a worship ceremony and eat. If you like, it's the difference. Um, do you know there's a Moss Kitchen restaurant that sells cheap, cheap curries in Newington? It's the difference between eating there or actually going to Friday prayers in a mosque and eating, or eating as part of an Eid festival or something, an explicit worship situation. Now, even as I say that, not all Christians would have the same conscience position on that. Some actually would think, oh, no, hang on, the mosque kitchen, even by its name, is associated with the worship uh, of a different God from the God of the Bible, a God who denies the, the sonship of the Lord Jesus, denies that Jesus is the only way to get right with God. And remember, we need to think about brothers with different consciences, brothers and sisters. So actually, if, if going there would cause my brother to stumble, especially a brother or sister from that background, well, biblically, I wouldn't use my freedom. I'd get a slightly more expensive curry somewhere else. 
Let's move on, because there's more than one place you can eat. You can uh, meet this meat and eat it. Um, uh, Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. Now just think about this. Why would you ever accept a dinner invite to someone's house uh, who's not a Christian? Well, of course... Uh, because we're seeking the good of our neighbor. We want to love and care for those around us. And so you, you eat whatever's set before you without raising questions. You don't poke around checking the kind of potential idol problems in the mix. We're keen, verse 32, to minimize cultural offense, to maximize the chance to share the good news of Jesus. We don't stop the dinner party and say, by the way, was this halal? And yet, and this, is what, this shows the kind of situational thinking that's needed, and yet, verse 28, if someone says to you this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. It's quite hard to know who this person is. Is it, is it the host, the unbelieving host, who, who maybe gives thanks, says grace at the start, and says we're about to eat this food to the glory of um, the great god Artemis or whatever? might be that, and that's the point where you say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm actually going to pass on the meat. Or is it uh, another Christian, a Christian with a weaker conscience who's with you and kind of leans across and says, by the way, this is dodgy. This is all idol food. We shouldn't be eating it. At which point you don't say, oh, how, how silly. Don't you know there are no such things as idols? You say, okay, good point. Respect their conscience. Paul's really keen to point out, verse 29, verse 30, it's not that it's objectively wrong. So there is still objective liberty, Uh, God doesn't mind, but for the sake of not confusing uh, the person who's mentioned it, uh, we don't eat. Or in other words, as we've seen before, Paul would rather go hungry than damage someone's eternal prospects. He longs to see many people saved. So then, let's begin to turn to issues, uh, other issues in our world. Um, I've put a flowchart, um, stolen from someone, a flowchart on the, on the handout, which gives you kind of the steps, the questions to, to work through. Um, firstly, is it participation in idolatry? So it's kind of, can I do this to the glory of God? That's the first principle. And then secondly, even if I can eat to God's glory, will it cause a, a brother or sister to stumble? If yes, well, I shouldn't eat it, or at least not in their sight. Um, and it will require situational thinking. And actually, different personalities here, different Christian backgrounds, will probably tend towards one or the other. We may need to hear either the challenge to be a bit more careful or the challenge to be a bit more engaged. And discussions in small groups hopefully will help with that. All the time, our heart is to love God and love our neighbors. Let's have a go at trying to just illustrate the thought process. My hope here is not to give you the answers, um, the Chalmers line on yoga that's about to come up. It's to model the way of thinking, which hopefully will then carry on through a myriad of different issues. Firstly, then yoga. So a Christian in our church family was invited to uh, an after-work yoga class by a colleague. Should they go? Well, of course, on our second principle, prioritize the eternal good of our neighbor, they'd love to take up the opportunity. Great chance to actually get to know someone at work beyond the superficial But what about the first principle, can you do yoga to the glory of God? And I'm aware some of us may well be doing yoga, so these questions aren't, they're they're live, aren't they? They're real. 
Let's think carefully. Is it participation in idolatry? That's the first box in the diagram. Actually, Christians would differ on the answer to that question. Um, Some would think of yoga as just a kind of physical exercise, just doing some stretches. Um, Others would say, well, no, hang on, the roots are in uh, Eastern spirituality, meditation, connection with um, pantheistic gods. And I think different classes, different yoga groups would, would place very different emphases. Some would have a meditation element, a spiritual element. Um, others would have stripped it to, to be what they say is a, just a physical class. Um, but of course, because there are different um, consciences on this as Christians, the question of what would a weaker brother or sister think is an important one. Um, one Christian in this church family spoke to someone from an Indian background for whom the particular positions you engage in in yoga could not be divorced in their mind from uh, an opening of oneself uh, to God's different to the Bible. So that person chose to do Pilates to get to know people rather than yoga. Someone else went to a class thinking it's just a, it's just a physical activity. It's just, it really is just an exercise class. Um, and they experienced the verse 28 moment. Um, so it was a perfectly normal kind of stretching, fitness, yoga, all that kind of, uh, bending, that kind of thing. And then there was a moment just at the end where they were told to breathe in and connect with the life force that the earth gives us. Suddenly it became a spiritual activity, a worship activity. And that was the moment they thought, right, I'm going to need a different class. At that point, you might think, well, hang on, hang on, this all sounds so complicated and a bit risky. Wouldn't it be easy just to turn down the invite? But remember, glorifying God doesn't mean we run away from our neighbors. So then, what about Halloween? There's a topical one this week. Um, And again, different Christians have different views on whether to join in or run a mile. Um, I actually discovered this week um, two of our elders have taken quite different approaches to this in our families. Um, And it's worth stopping and thinking, how would these 1 Corinthians gospel principles apply? Um, Some of us may have never kind of done that consciously. Maybe we've just had a kind of instinctive reaction to either join in or run away. Um, It's interesting, Jessie and I, she's um, from America, and in the area she was, it was totally common for Christians to kind of go go all in. It's just a fun night where you dressed up and collected sweets. Harmless fun. My family would have, that night, turned the lights off, closed the curtains, and had nothing to do with it. It's a night when evil is celebrated. But what does it look like to think like Christ and Paul on Halloween night? Well, let's work through the questions. Is it participation in idolatry? Is it idol worship? And are we participating? Well, no doubt, both from the roots of the festival and actually from its kind of character in lots of the costumes and the topics kind of being celebrated. There is a kind of an inversion of good and evil, a kind of celebration of anti-God, a, a kind of um, trivialization of the occult. So, so you might well say, yes, hang on, there is some, there is some strange idolatry going on here. But even if that's right, what does it look like to participate or not participate in that worship? Well, Christian families will vary on this. Godly Bible-believing families I know, some uh, would, would dress up in a costume, but it'd be a clearly not a Halloween kind of costume, uh, the kind of Bob the Builder approach to it, or decorate the, the house or the classroom with very different kinds of decoration. Um, in our kitchen, we've got some pumpkins, 
but they're, they're, they're colored in with different ways, not carved into scary looking faces. Some may think actually it's better to not get involved, but come up with a positive alternative. So we as a church family have the big night in going on on Halloween night, a positive alternative to engage with people around us. Um, uh, there'll still be lots of fun, uh, but it will be wholesome and pointing to Jesus. Each of us need to apply the principles in conscience. And I guess as we begin to do this more and more as a church family, we, we may have regrets. Some may think, well, I never even took seriously the risk of idolatry. Others, like me, may think, it's, it's, it was so hard to meet our neighbors, and one night they came around to visit and knock on our door, and we ignored them. <laughs> Slightly ironic, isn't it? But let's be creative in thinking, how can we engage and still glorify God? Our time is pretty much up. Um, let me just mention two more very briefly, because um, they're ones which are coming up a lot. And this obviously isn't going to be nearly enough time to, to properly talk them through, so I hope we do continue talking. And please ask me questions and the other elders and preachers, and we'll have chances, um, hopefully, during those central nights you can ask uh, questions if they're coming up in groups. Um, but what about, lots of you have raised the question, how should you respond to an invitation to a same-sex wedding? It's been a regular question that's emerged. And I want to say the, the principles are exactly the same. So work through them. Can I glorify God being there? I want to minimize cultural offense. I want to engage with people around me. So let's quickly run through the flowchart. Is it participation in idolatry? Actually, I think it does depend what kind of wedding it is, actually. I, personally, I think the difference between a registry office kind of wedding and a church wedding is quite a big difference a civil ceremony or a religious one. Um, it also makes a big difference if the people are Christians or not. If they're saying they profess Christ whilst behaving in a way that doesn't agree with the Bible, that puts it in a different category. You might want to go back and listen to the sermon online of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is very clear. If you just look at chapter 5, verse 9, it's worth turning. Um, chapter 5, verse 9, page 954. In chapter 5, Paul has been warning them not to tolerate someone who professes Jesus in their church but lives in adultery. And then verse 9, he adds a really important clarification. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? I think that's a very relevant passage to reflect on. And if you are grappling with a, a specific uh, example of that, feel free to, to talk in more detail. But actually, the final issue I, I want to close on is not one that will be relevant to a subset of us, but one that's relevant to every single one of us which is, what do you do with Christmas? There are some Christians who would say, I'm not going to celebrate Christian, Christmas. It's got pagan origins. But I don't so much mean that. Um, uh, I mean um, all the consumption that goes on around Christmas, the office parties, the huge materialism when it comes to gifts, the excess of eating and drinking. How do Christians engage with a celebration that has become idolatrous? in our culture. 
What an opportunity it is to get alongside people. How do you do it in a way that glorifies God? I'm not going to give us the answers. I think it's one we need to think through with each other. Um, I know in terms of the office party, I know there'll be some who, um, who will go along but decide not to drink that night. It's just easier to draw a line there. Some might go to a kind of meal and drinks phase but not go to the club afterwards. Um, others might find alternative ways to celebrate Christ- Christmas with their um, friends and colleagues and neighbours. It's precisely the kind of area we need careful situational thinking that's driven by the heart that Christ had, a heart desiring to glorify God and seek the good that is the eternal salvation of many. Our Father in heaven, we do pray so much you would make us more like your Son. We pray like Paul, we would be able to relegate our preferences, our advantage, our comfort behind living for your glory and the salvation of many. And please, we pray, give us good ideas, good imaginative ideas as we talk through what that looks like on the ground. We long to be a church that honors you, both in ways we say no to idolatry and ways we say yes to engaging with people around us. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.